Hello there, welcome to another episode. Of the, this is the Soapy Rao Show, in case you're wondering. But um, be ready to have your minds blown, not your minds. I know there's war going on in the world, but your minds blown. Because I've been thinking about this. But anyway, hey, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Hope you're well, blah, 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 blah. Hope your mental health is good. Hope your balls are not tangled. Whatever is going on in your life, I hope it's all straightened out. And if you don't like things straight, then I hope they're curvy. Everything goes and whatever. I, you know, I should always say, for, I was taught, I didn't, was not taught it, but I thought the saying was, whatever rocks your boat, but apparently it's whatever floats your boat. Because in America, it's whatever floats your boat. Um, but I don't know, I thought it's rocks your boat, but clearly I think floats your boat makes sense because why would you want your boat to rock? Uh, unless, of course, you like rocky boats. But everything's flipped in America, man, because I thought I was, just when I thought I got my English right in University of Wales and Swansea, I go to America and they're like, oh no, it's wrong. Like, yeah, fanny means different things. Um, strange. But uh, clearly, whatever floats your boat, I'm sticking with that because the world is going the American way. Or it has gone, maybe the tide is changing or maybe there is a drift in the climate or something. Can, there's change in the air. Can you smell it? Anyhow, um, I've been thinking about this whole concept of money. Now, I'm not obsessing over money. If it does seem that way, maybe I am. Uh, point out my flaws. But the reason why I'm thinking about money is because we have this notion that we have to work to get money. And I suppose that's true. But let's look at this in two different or three different ways. Yeah, I've broken this down. I've spent some time. Three minutes on the pot this morning and the thought and the concept is very clear in my head right now. We are told that we have to work and we get paid and we use that money to live. Got it? Pretty clear till now. So that money is giving us a chance to buy goods and services um, which will supposedly enhance our lives. Of course, better quality of life, better food, Better shelter, better clothing, better booze, better prostitutes, whatever you need. Or a better partner, depending on how you want to present yourself, education, all these things, a better status in society, status in society. Uh, but then there's the next stage where we think the more you work, the more money you make, which I suppose is also true. So the reward system. The more you bend over and take it from the senior management, the more they reward you with stock options, the more they reward you with bonus, the more they reward you with a higher package or a packet. And then you get more and you spend more. and you spend. But what I'm trying to get past is this notion that money is only possible or to make more money, you have to work more or the only way you can make more is by working. I think that needs to be isolated because, see, of course, there is now the reward or the remuneration through work is money, whether it's stocks, whether it's Bitcoin, whatever. It comes to um, currency which you can spend uh, or save or put up your bum, whatever you choose to do with that. But I think it's stupid, right? Because and I'm, it's not, I, I, it was much clearer in my head. Um, See, the thing is, if your entire focus in life is to make money, you don't have to work. 
You get what I mean? There are the you, you kind of told that because I, I speak to a couple of people, um, not on this podcast alone, but just some people are like, oh, I need to work another five years so I can save up enough, or I need to do this much so I have um, a certain um, a certain piggy bank or a certain pot which I can live off for the rest of my life. Now, I know people who work their entire life, fifty years, sixty years, and they just have not much because. You're also designed. The system is designed for you to spend that money. The system is designed for you to uh, spend more as you make more um, with this kind of material escalator, escalator with better clothes, better cars, better jewelry, better watches, better homes, uh, better amenities, uh, better memberships, whatever there is to spend, there is something to spend on. Uh, or wherever there's an opportunity to spend, there is a service or a thing that you will be told that you need as you go up the ladder. Now, there are people who make, and of course, yeah, the thing is, if your sole focus, of course, is to make money, and I mean not to spend it, but your goal is to just make, make, make money, I don't think you need to work in a conventional job. I don't think you need to have a nine-to-five. You don't have to have a career. But you can entirely develop your life skills and your... um, whatever it is, the things you pick up along the way and hone those skills and you can entirely focus on becoming a money-making machine. Uh, I don't know what the opportunities are uh, and the avenues are because I wouldn't be, uh, I mean, maybe I would be doing this, but I, I think we've all been told that you have to work, get a job, you get money. Bullshit. You don't need that approach. That's there. Many of us, most of us do that and then you wake up going, oh, wait a second, I spent 50 years or whatever, 30 years working for this company, they've given me stocks, they give me everything, but the illusion is, because whatever it may be, like even celebrities might seem like they have $100 million, $200 million, but they hoard themselves out a lot, and that at the end of the day, it doesn't seem like a lot of money for hoarding yourself out that much. I mean, of course, it's a, the hoarding gets less and more depending where, on where you are or in which context you are. Celebrities hoard themselves, and it's more money, but some people hoard themselves, and it's less money. And basically, we are all just whores, is what I think this podcast title should be. Uh, but I can't call it that, because I have a guest on the other side of this, um, and I, I don't want him to think that that's the title of where he's featured. No, he's got a lot to tell you about, but anyway, I'll get to that. So what I'm trying to say is that you don't have to fall for this trap of the more you work, the more money you get, the more you're rewarded, the more you commit to a company or the more. Of course, not everyone has it in them. I don't know how to make money. In fact, I know how to spend money, but I don't know how to make it as well. So I'm just here giving you my breakdown of what this concept is. But there are some people who are very, very um, single-mindedly good at doing things. Now, whether it's cleaning a house, whether... It's social work. So I was saying, if you have that kind of single-minded need to make money, and that's your sole focus, don't work. Just learn how to make money really well. And I'm sure this has probably been said by someone else, more experienced and more good at making money, and they probably write a book and make money off that. But I'm giving it for free. See, I'm not putting it behind a paywall. I'm terrible at making money. I'm giving you the free podcast week in, week out, and I don't know how to get a Patreon page. I don't have to put a paywall. YouTube won't allow me to get a subscriber thing because I don't have enough fans on the page. It's fucking, it's it's, it's, it's ridiculous, but it doesn't affect me. Um, at least when I'm saying this now. It affects me later. I'm like, Aah. yeah, but what I'm trying to get at is don't have to get into that trap. Now, some people are good at it. Some people are, some people need the job, but if you're willing to take that leap of faith and just focus all your skills, all your time in your formative 
academic or whatever the the time that you spend education to get a job um what if you focus that only on making money do it and let me know how that pans out because clearly i'm not going to do it but let me know what what you think of the idea because i think there is something there maybe i've not thought it through but there is something there and uh, if i've given you a spark of an idea or given you hope or given you a, ooh um do 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 act on it if it falls f- flat in its face hey fuck it right you tried don't come back and bitch to me go yeah you put up this as i told you everything on this podcast is free you can take it with a pinch of salt if you have a uh, high blood pressure don't take the salt but take it with a pinch on your ass whatever choose uh, whatever you choose to do but Let's move on because my guest on today's episode is Mr. Albert Nerenberg. He's a fantastic human being from Canada. And of course, when I say fantastic human being, I don't mean it loosely. We in fact just introduce each other to each other or introduce ourselves to each other on the call. We didn't have prior um, you know, prep. Um he's a fantastic guy. He's got a lot of documentaries out. He's a filmmaker, he's a hypnotist, but we didn't talk too much about the hypnotism part because man, just we 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 just got caught up in the conversation about the various interests his documentaries which he's made on these interests and it's just so strange that we've never met we're in different parts of the world but we connected on so many levels and um, i'm really excited for you guys to listen to this it's uh, a great conversation with a really interesting human being and a fun guy and a canadian hi hey yeah so Without further ado, uh do listen to the conversation with Mr. Albert Nerenberg only here on the Soapy Rao show coming up on the other side. Do share it with friends, with your family, with your pets, with your uh loved ones. And if your family, friends and pets are happen to be your loved ones, nothing like it. If they're not, then find a category of loved ones. And of course, you can thank me later about the tip about making money. Hey, what do you say? Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Goodbye. God bless. Take care of yourselves. Till next time. Cheers. Mr. Albert Nirenberg, welcome to the Soapy Rao show. How are you this well morning for me and evening for you, sir? <laughs> uh, I'm 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 pretty good. Uh, um I'm enjoying I make a joke when I'm enjoying our our coronavirus sixth wave here, but um, Oh wow. Okay. We're in our sixth wave, but but um no, but I I'm, I'm kidding. It's not probably not a lot of laughs, but um yeah. uh but I'm good. I I I I uh spring is coming in Canada, which is a big relief, I think. We're happy about it. lovely no you know what the strange thing is uh there's um as you mentioned with coronaviruses and the wave, waves of the the pandemic um we have a chain of coffee shops in bangalore where i live just like starbucks called third wave coffee and last may i was just like man these guys really didn't <laughs> anticipate an <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is funny <laughs> yeah it's it's unintended i'm sure but they really got yeah. a i don't know if they got a boost in sales but the yeah. wave really uh, was like where are you going <laughs> so yeah. it's i think sometimes um you know uh, destiny plays out in in different shapes and forms but so you, you're sitting right now in in toronto am i right i'm in, i'm actually near near toronto not okay. actually in toronto yeah so uh, yeah i mean i think it was um it was interesting because you guys had all the attention on um you know your capital when it came to the the the, the, the lorry or the the truck strikes and the barricades and the entire blockade but um i think now everything sort of dismantled and is is life back to so called normal or uh, how yeah it's are... a tough one you know this this is um i just think it's a, it's probably a rabbit hole that we could go down for a while but um mm. 
I find myself a little bit, you know, I think we've all found the pandemic to be um, intensely suffocating. Yeah. I, and I also, I find like on an intellectual level, intellectual, I mean, the there are a bunch of issues that weren't even ever debated or I'll give you an example. Um, right now, uh, uh, people are sort of saying um, uh, the recovery, the, the, the virus has become far less dangerous and it's on its way out. Uh, the, the sort of implicit explanation is that it has to do with vaccines. Uh, but I've been, I travel and I was in places like Nepal where, I don't know, 25% of people are vaccinated and the virus is doing the same thing. So mm. vaccines aren't really a factor in what's happening to the virus, I think. But you're not allowed to say that. No, and like an look, official, yeah, even like people narrative. like Joe Rogan, everyone's sort of under fire for saying things which are proving more and more real, right? Like, of course, vaccine, yeah. I mean, we're not saying that vaccines are bad. I think all of us have been vaccinated against something yeah. or the other, and we're here yeah. because of that. But this particular vaccine, um, I mean, that's the thing, right? The, the, the narrative is changing from, oh, you're never going to get COVID after you get this vaccine to you'll get milder symptoms. So what is the reality? What is the truth, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and also just that that if the if the virus is sort of getting milder, m maybe it was going to do it anyways. And that's uh, exactly I uh, something I'm, I spoke to a virologist who was heading one of the departments at this university in Delhi, and he said that he said as the vi the, the the virus doesn't want to kill the host, it wants to live in the host. So it's trying to figure out as well what's the best sort of symbiotic. Uh, set up what's the best roommate situation I can develop before this host just keeps abandoning me <laughs> you know so I, I think like that's what it's with... doing it's trying to live with uh, with you and you're just being a difficult roommate so maybe these <laughs> you know no one wants to be a roommate that's no right. one wants to be the roommate but I, I think that's the thing I got my at home uh, my wife my mom and I got a bad bout of COVID last May and we had pretty strong antibodies because of that we got the second the the second uh, variant right and that was pretty potent like we had fatigue we had body pain we had 10 12 days of like you know the, the smell went and then my mom had uh, stomach cramps but fortunately the oxygen levels didn't drop but after that i was like am i going to take something that my body uh, i'm not going to trust what my body's developed to fight uh, and defend me or i'm going to take something which is a foreign body injector anyway i, I kind of succumbed to peer pressure and took it because my wife's like we're not going to get a chance to travel um uh if we don't take this vaccine and i was like okay we'll take the vaccine so we can travel and the next thing uh she's pregnant and we can't travel anyway because she's a, <laughs> she's not allowed to travel after a few months so i'm like oh great <laughs> but so you raise an interesting question is that a lot of people assumed that natural immunity is a factor and early on in the pandemic uh there was a whole bunch of you know kind of like fast pedaled research saying natural immunity is very weak and doesn't work at all in the case of COVID, even though in other diseases it, it does. Yeah. And then that position was reversed. And mm. so anyways, this is why people have questions. But I, I, yeah. I have a feeling like we're not, you know, a, a bunch of us right now, we, we we call COVID the thing that should not be mentioned. Yeah, the one who must not be. Yeah. <laughs> it should not be. It's such a dreary topic. Yeah. You know, except no, that but it's, it's, it, it leads into this place because it sort of brings out this versatile portfolio of things that you do in your life, which is um, you, you essentially ask questions, right? Whether it's in the role of a filmmaker where you're kind of pondering uh, things like laughter and humor. And I want to talk about all of these things and not sort of, uh, I find it uh, fascinating to even your newest project, which you just mentioned, which is about natural eye healing. Um, you, you, you kind of, the curiosity drives, uh, and I love being curious as well, um, to being a hypnotist and, 
I think, you know, you do a, a range of other things as well. So in a time where you're being told um, what to do and how to think and how not to be and how you're going to be exposed to a certain thing and follow a bunch of rules, and I'm not saying they're all bad or good, I'm not passing judgment, because of course, today's day and age, you have to be an expert before you say anything. But what was, uh, how, how have you come out of this past two years um, and looking at the world around you and sort of what kind of questions are you asking yourself at this time? That's a really good question. I mean, I, I have played a part, weird part in this. Uh, I don't think it's that well known, but um, uh, I should explain that, uh, you know, I, I'm a, I am pro-science. My, my father was a physicist, a, a somewhat well-known physicist. Um, so I am science oriented. Uh, but um, I, from the very beginning, I felt there was there was manipulation, there was intimidation. One of the biggest examples was um, at the very, sorry, at the beginning of the pandemic, they told everyone to stay the fuck inside. Yeah. And I just thought it was an example of, I could understand in a big crowded city that yeah. why that was imperative, but, but not everybody lives in big cities and not everyone is, needs to stay the fuck inside. And it, yeah. it also, staying the fuck inside is also one of the most unhealthy things you can do. Absolutely, so, yeah, yeah. So, so I was shocked. In fact, this doc documentary I'm working on, I'm finishing now called Cold Fever, is actually about a group of people who go outside. It's like the power of outsideness. Um, Especially where you live. I mean, I've had uh, a few years in the Northwest in America, like uh, okay. outside Portland, Oregon. I mean, of course, I'm not talking about uh, Portland in context of the pandemic and what happened with the elections, etc. But generally, the outdoors in in, the, in in North America is beautiful. Like it's it's vast. Like I, I don't have that kind of space in Bangalore or in Bombay. Someone living has That's right. or in L.A. or San Francisco, wherever New York. But when you're living in like suburban America, or even a little beyond suburban America, you've got at least an acre around you. <laughs> I think staying out is a good thing. That's exactly it. I mean, part of this, the film is an interesting twist is that a group of us decided rather than stay the fuck inside, we went mm -hmm. outside when the pandemic hit. And, you know, the idea was that outside was safe, that you that if you, you know, keep a reasonable distance, you're not going to infect yeah. people if you're outdoors. Um, but the problem was in Canada, the, there's a pretty vicious winter that comes. And mm -hmm. so a bunch of us started cold swimming. So I, I, I became a cold swimmer the last two years where that's where you actually go into a freezing lake. People think it's hypnosis. It's interesting. I do a lot of things that are hypnosis, but swimming in a, in a lake that's at zero degrees is not hypnosis. It's actually something else. I mean, it has maybe there's some principles that, are, that, that it borrows from hypnosis. But um, so... Um, yeah, because I, I read about that. Yeah, uh, sorry, just on that point, because it's uh, something which is sort of prop, uh, uh, cropped up. I'm losing the ability to speak as well. Yeah. Uh, over the past, like I've been reading this book by David Sinclair called um, Lifespan. And in that he talks about uh, certain things besides diet and exercise, which are good for longevity. And one of these things is um, cold plunges. And right. um, I read about even in another context where you look at um, people who go through an initiation process when they're pursuing this path of spirituality, yogis or Tibetan monks, who basically live in the mountains when they're going through their, I don't know if it's initiation or if it's the process of apprenticeship. And one of the things they have to do is do uh, a swim in, a, in an icy lake and then they have to sort of warm up themselves and the towel has to dry off just through their body heat, which they do through breathing practices. So it's very interesting you mentioned that and I'd like to uh, well, in fact, that's exactly the story I was chasing. I went to Nepal in uh, November, December, to ah, find okay. it. Actually, that whole 
in a sense that tradition originates or i mean it probably originates in a lot of places but it originates in in nepal in a particular cave mm. it's quite a weird story um uh that there is a particular monk who sort of figured out the style of breathing called inner fire or translates mm. as inner fire mm-hmm. and and wim hof who's this crazy dutch guy learned this style of breathing and yes. then has now okay. become like he has a show on the bbc now where the whole idea is like he's throwing people in icy lakes but yeah. i think <laughs> but where, where you and i agree like let me try, let me try to tell you what i think i do because i want to sort of frame this correctly a best way like somebody said to me the other day they said you're a master of the obvious and what i think i do differently than other people is i'm able to make things really simple and clear like uh like obvious in a way. So, so with a cold, what I think, I, you know, I discovered in, in working on this film is that we have an irrational fear of the cold. Mm. The cold is actually good for us in small doses. It's not good to get frostbite or yeah. freeze, but in small doses, the cold is actually empowering. Mm. And particularly if you live in a, in a Northern climate, it changes your view of your world because places that you would just avoid because they're so cold, yeah. you now suddenly are see the beauty of. So there's like a really amazing factor. So, so what I specialize in is these very simple ideas. So this this film I'm making now is called Cold Fever, yeah. and the sort of slogan is "Some like it cold." You know, it's a play on "Some like it hot." Yeah, yeah. And um, and then with hypnosis is a similar thing. I, I think that uh, people always get confused because they think, "How can this guy be a filmmaker and a hypnotist?" or you know, the mystique kind of confuses people, yeah. but I literally, when I do hypnosis, I'm literally trying to explain a very obvious point. So one of my, the TEDx's that I did is has to do with um, finger snapping. Mm-hmm. And uh, my claim is that there's a, one of the reasons that, that hypnosis is misunderstood is that people see it as a kind of authoritarian tradition where mm. people order you into trance or intimidate right. you into trance but yeah. it's actually more interesting than that it's actually what's called the shock induction where if you surprise somebody like with a finger snap you can uh the next suggestion sometimes can go much deeper and this also has implications for propaganda mm. if you scare people or bomb people or frighten people with an idea they're often mm more open to suggestion and, and you had asked originally how I, this played a part in the um in the broader pandemic i was actually recently floating down to miami beach where there's an there's a really interesting conference called hereticon it was like heretical thoughts is the uh-huh. idea, whole idea of the conference and the the guy who was there as a big deal was robert malone so robert malone is a pretty famous um or suddenly like blew up with his claim that people were hypnotized around the pandemic and but he's but robert malone is not a hypnotist he's just a uh he's actually the claims to be be instrumental in the development of um mnra vaccines he's a scientist so is he the guy who got on the joe rogan podcast and got into trouble ah that's okay that's what the name is a huge thing and literally the next week i was in miami beach and i did a show um unfortunately the show they just didn't record this conference, didn't record what it did, but I did a show where I demonstrated that you could indeed hypnotize people to believe just about anything. Mm. But it, but but it's like a there's a lot of interesting questions. I, I demonstrated how mass hypnosis might work. Um, I personally don't think 
I think that mass hypnosis is going on, mm. but I don't think it's there's only one party doing it, mm. you know. And anyways, at this event, I spent time with Robert Malone. I, I talked to him. I'm not sure I, I agree with him because his point is that that's a giant sort of pharmaceutical scam, mm. you know, the whole thing. Uh, but you know, I don't think that's exactly true. Uh, I think this. What, what when you get if you're a true truth seeker, you find out that the truth is often a little complicated, more complicated yeah. than you want it to be. You know, it's layered and it has. Yeah. yeah, I don't think they're all just bad actors and good actors. I think there are people, good people in bad situations, who have to make tough decisions, which aren't always um, with the best outcome. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. You know what's 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 fascinating is I mean I I don't know maybe the experience of swimming because you know I I have this fear of water I don't know where it came from but I've I've always as a kid been in swimming pools in the I've been taken to the ocean I've gone for a thing but you know I think there's obviously that that Jaws idea like you know but I I don't know what it is that uh, triggers this thing because I've been thinking about it and more and more as an adult in my adult life there's this fear of not being able to breathe and and, and breathing is such a uh, important um, technique that you can develop while swimming or in the water because it's a different kind of stress you put onto your body and when you do it especially in sub-zero temperatures or whatever in zero temperatures it's it's better for your body so I'm just like you know I and I've been practicing a lot of uh, I wouldn't say a lot of but I've been very intrigued by breath work and the oh, various I kinds do breath of work. oh lovely I'm like a- okay I I, tr- I teach breathwork. I'm I, I've become recently obsessed with breathwork, mainly because mm-hmm. I think breathwork is can do some really crazy things. I mean, yeah, the whole, I, I don't if you know, read the book by James Nestor called Breathe, it, he talks about yeah. that, right? And I, I was very fascinated about that because I I, I do, you know, I'm, as as I said, I don't teach. I just practice a little bit because you have the pranayama practice, you have the sudarshan right. kriya, you have various um, South well, Asian. This stuff comes, it comes from India. That's, yeah. that's the interesting thing. It does. It does. Yeah. So it's amazing how when you're, I mean, the natural progression would be a, get your breathing when you're in the water better because it strengthens your lungs and you're able to do more. But I'm just not able to get past that hurdle. So, I mean, now as a person who's, who teaches breath work and as a person who also um, has this element and this idea into hypnosis, um, what do you feel like when you're in that lake or in that river or the stream at zero degrees or sub-zero temperatures? And maybe you, can you talk about how um, maybe as that in, as an entry point into this idea of hypnosis? Yeah, I'm trying to think of it. You know, it's just that I, I actually, um, the best way I could explain it is I, I, I did a series of sort of escalations Partly to understand, because because I don't want to pr- pretend that I don't have a fear of the cold. I mean, the cold is terrifying. Uh, getting frostbite or or freezing, I think, uh, or just you know, getting a chill is not pleasant. And freezing water is extremely painful. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's so predictably painful that most when scientists do pain studies, they often use ice water because ice water is such a good predictor of pain. Mm. People all basically experience it the same way at the same level of pain. So ice water is extremely painful. But here's what, I'll give you an example. In the film, one of the things that blew my mind in cold fever was if when you first jump into a freezing lake, and I would say the temperature is around two or three degrees, just Ooh. above freezing, there's snow, <laughs> it's snowing outside, that uh, it is alarming 
you're you're you start breathing like panting in a sense with you know involuntarily because it's powerful but then the pain actually goes away in in about 30 seconds and you actually start to feel pretty fantastic so what actually happens is you adapt to it and mm. the the principle of adapting to something like that is mind-blowing I, I would explain it simply we we evolved all over this planet at some point animals or mammals where you know experienced ice ages or cold and and we all have like a deep ability to adapt to cold even one thing i find interesting is that there's often a cultural difference i have some friends who are latin american mm. and they're like mortified because they're like like latin america is generally a hot continent yeah and they think that they just think that genetically they aren't disposed to cold but it's not true Mm. Even somebody you know who is grew up in a warm climate can learn these techniques. And yeah. to give you not, and, and what I think it says is our power. I mean, this is Wim Hof too. Our ability to adapt to certain phenomena that we think is impossible, like swimming under the ice in a cold lake, is possible. And in not not just that empowering. I did so. I mentioned I escalated so. First, what's interesting about the winter is that it started off, you know, a little bit like cool weather. And in, in Canada, we have, you know, November, which is, you know, cold. But then we have December, which is very cold. And January yeah. is when the lake freezes. Right. And, and it's funny what you said about fears. I have a bit of a phobia about going through the ice. I think everybody does because we've all seen those Hollywood movies where yeah, somebody's yeah. like walking on the ice and they fall through the ice. Yeah. And yeah. And either they end up like under the ice and they can't get out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. or they just simply can't get themselves out of the water because they're, you they're can't in shock. Grip yourself or you have no strength. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, as an experiment, I can send you the video. As an experiment, I just did um, uh, an experiment where I, there was a hole in the ice and I was even wearing a suit just to demonstrate it. I wanted to see if I could do it fully clothed. No, oh, And I okay. just walked. And I just fell like a through suit suit, not a wetsuit. <laughs> yeah, a suit suit, just clothes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I fell through the ice and went right through. And um, although I would describe it as shocking, you know, and I, I wouldn't say it was a barrel of laughs. Yeah. But it actually was a barrel of laughs. I mean, what I'm saying is at the end, I was laughing. But also what I found out was that it's very doable. If... Mm. And why not even practice it? Well, if you lived in Canada, you might want yeah. to practice going through the ice so that you're just not irrationally afraid of it. So the um, thing is, do you, do you laugh uh, because your body wants to warm up and that act of laughing does it? And um, do, so you said you, you, you kind of become, the, the, the pain goes away, the initial shock goes away. So is that some, but, but isn't that like they, 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 some people have said when, when you have, uh, what's it called, hypothermia setting in, you start becoming, the body withdraws blood from the extremities and it sort of just yeah. protects the organs. So isn't that a bad thing? Because you start getting numb and your sensations go and you might think it's, it's euphoria or whatever, lack of pain, but isn't pain a good indicator of survival? Uh, what I think it is, is that it's, a, it's an, a, that, that's like a good counterpoint to what I'm saying. But I, I think that, it's not i think that what it really is is that you can adapt to it you have mm -hmm. the ability to swim in a very cold lake for mm -hmm. 10 20 minutes it's not not for 3 hours but yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah. and 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 these there's people who break records they they swim under ice uh and i think the record these days is is 
either is it three minutes or two minutes somewhere around three or two, two or three minutes on one breath so wow. okay the point is people can do that that's and like free divers right they do yeah uh, depth diving with one breath i think it's deb debatable but what, what i really think is it, pr it it points to adaptability that that yeah that that you can this is something that your body can handle and it's and it's universal that's what's interesting no, it's amazing. I th I find it remarkable. Do you think heat has the same effect in the other extreme? Well, it's interesting that um, there's sort of research on like the cold baths versus hot baths. Yeah. And I think hot baths are very pleasant. Yeah. But cold baths are very healthy, and they're they're quite a bit healthier. So that's just, that's. And what's interesting is that you know it's really funny. This is more of an American phenomenon. I think people have been so spoiled in a sense by consumer culture that they expect like people often Americans travel or Canadians to travel to Mexico yeah. in the winters and in the, in midwinter, the Mexican waters in Mexico often, um, I don't know, maybe 22, 23 degrees centigrade, which is pretty warm or 25 yeah. degrees, Yeah. but they will complain that it's too cold for them. And that's because people have been acculturated to believe that the world is their bathtub that they mm -hmm. like bathtub temperatures. And the best thing that cold swimming does for you is you recognize that actually fresh, cool water, I'm not talking about extremely cold, just even yeah. you know, 10 degrees or 14 degrees like that, is, ex is actually extremely pleasant and refreshing. And yeah. Now I can so, vouch for that. I, I remember like growing up, my cousin used to take me uh, to work out because he's like, you're really, your frame's really narrow, whatever. So I remember in December, Bangalore doesn't get cold by north american standards right we we hit we hit about 11 degrees in the peak of winter like in the night at 3 a.m or maybe nine degrees if it's a re relatively colder winter but like we used to go at five in the morning and he used to just say rinse off under the sh shower and we're jumping in and whoa that that was cold like and <laughs> not sub-zero or uh freezing point but it you'd feel great after though that's right. I save I save money on coffee because I take cold showers every morning. And I, I mean, I really do. I, I'm yeah. not joking. It's like I, I drink much less coffee now because I'm much more alert. Actually, and, you know uh, what? I don't I don't even know why I do coffee because I, it's sort of a habitual uh, drink for me in the morning because I stop milk, I stop sugar with my coffee, and now I'm, I'm having a cup of coffee as we speak, and I'm just like, I feel good anyway because um, unless, of course, you know you really need a, a kickstarter for the day. I think what you said is right because I try making it a point, like my initial sort of plunge into the shower needs to be a little warm, but then I just sort of turn the tap back on to fully cold. Plus, we're dealing with a pretty hot summer here in Bangalore right now. So I think um, it's it's a really cool thing that we avoid. I mean, this, this thing that we aspire for hot showers, I think, especially in India, the idea of a hot shower is something that a lot of people look forward to because a lot of people don't have access to electricity and as a result uh, to geysers or to boiling water, which they can then use. So I think it's also a thing that we've been told is as, a, as, a, as an advancement, you get to a better place in life where you can have access to hot showers. But, and you go and tell that person, no, no, actually go jump into a cold lake. <laughs> They're like, bugger that. I'm not. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's a lot of the messaging. Yeah. I, um I think it's, you know, this is a kind of new, I mean, like, literally there's a show going on the BBC, I think next week or mm. in a couple of weeks the, where the, I think it will create a lot of um, awareness about, uh, it's, 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 they take a bunch of cele celebrities and basically throw them into ice water. And, ah, uh, and not slap so it, them, right? <laughs> yeah. And they go screaming into ice water, I think. So I ah. think it's an interesting, um, 
uh, uh, I think it's going to open up a conversation. And you realize, you know, it's interesting. Wim Hof, mm. who who's popularized this, so he's this Dutch. Uh, he's actually a world record holder in the sense that he's done a bunch of um, athletic. One of his, he does funny things, like he yeah, he yeah. climbed he climbed Mount Everest in his shorts. He didn't get Ooh, he didn't okay. get to the top. He went to twenty four thousand feet, but That's basically high enough. Yeah, yeah, shorts and no shirt. Um, he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, sandals, shorts, and no shirt. He's, he's, he's run an Antarctic marathon, same thing. But his belief is interesting. He believes that our addiction to clothing, in particular, furniture mm. and clothing, has made us weak. Right. And, and that's what um, part of what his theory is, is that... Mm. Uh, you don't need as much clothing. And he spends the entire winter, if I remember correctly, like more or less in his sandals and his T-shirt. Like he lives in northern Poland. And I think he just spends the entire winter outside in the cold. Like the no, monks. This is amazing. Yeah, months yeah. in the cold. And and this is another repeating theme, right? You, you If you read books on spirituality and yogis. That's all they wear, especially the ones, uh, I mean, I don't know them all. Like, I don't pretend that I know. But the ones who meditate in the caves and um, the ones who are deep into a spiritual practice, they can really survive wearing a thing like a loincloth, right? They actually survive winters. And as you said, the weakness comes also from material attachment, right? Because they don't have right. a, a big, big wardrobe to lug around. So they are free to travel and explore the various shrines or whatever their spirit, wherever the spiritual journey takes them. So I, I find that remarkable, um, not just that this person is continuing it, but it is a repeating theme over the course of history. And it's just that we, we seem to more and more shun that for material comforts and um, and metaphorically and physically, we keep adding more and more layers between us and, if you want to call it the truth, or the experience that human beings really uh, craved in the past and that we are so easily just sort of uh, adding more illusion to it, right? Yeah, I know, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the, that um, the, the monks who, st who started this, uh, that was one of the famous uh, demonstrations that you would, they would put wet sheets on them and they would have the ability to dry sheets. But what's interesting is that um, I know I've followed, there's scientists who essentially demonstrated the principle of how it works. The principle of it is that when people are, are have like a kind of fitness around cold exposure, they're, they're able to marshal their brown fat to burn glucose very quickly. So the, the reason why I got Wim Hof can climb Mount Everest like seemingly naked yeah, because you're you're like, how can a, a guy be in the winds of the Himalayas, you know, naked? Yeah, is that basically his body is ramping up its heat producing process, creating a kind of shield of warmth, um, like an inner thermos, and th like a like a like an inner yeah. kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, um, um, <laughs> I can't get the word anyway. Like um, a furnace. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Well, yeah, he literally calls it inner fire. That's right. that's the the name of it, and and that's that's that name actually comes from the original uh, Nepalese or or Indian. I get into trouble because I mentioned it. I think it was it was sort of codified in Nepal, but I think the monks were themselves Indian. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's know, all it's, one region. I think we're just sort of yeah. now trying to get yeah. our egos involved. Going, oh, just it's literally one inch yeah, across I the know, borders. Yeah. 
but but yeah. how was that experience did you did, so you went to shoot this for you went to cover this particular group of monks for, or this place for a cold fever so when, when did you go and uh, how was that experience i mean how is nepal and how are these people uh, are they oblivious to what's happening in the outside world with the pandemic and what's or if they are what is their approach to this thing like do they have a um, are they caught up are they swept up in the tide of uh, panic and fear and all of that um okay well, good question i i love nepal i was really impressed with it uh uh but um the be- best way i would explain it is i had a very weird experience and i think it, it, you might find this funny mm. um basically we had figured out on a map the exact location of the cave where the monks had codified tumo breathing so tumo breathing is the breathing technique that later becomes inner fire which wim hof popularizes through breathwork right what what's so, the name sorry i lost, i didn't get that it's called inner fire or oh, no, is there another the word? original name sorry the original name the nepalese name is tumo, tumo i'm not okay. sure why it's called tumo and and it's the principle of inner fire so okay. so we knew where the cave was we knew that it was in a, along a river that essentially snakes through kathmandu but we didn't know much more than that so the crew and i we we basically we arrive in kathmandu i think it's our second or third day there and we head off into this to the river to sort of walk up the river to where the cave is mm-hmm. and we arrive there we realize there's a hu- there's a lot going on there's like a huge temple mm-hmm. and then we notice there's smoke acrid white smoke everywhere and then when we get to the river we see there are pyres and on the pyres there are burning human bodies now okay. indians probably don't find this too shocking but you know westerners do yeah. uh i had never seen anything like it but basically by what's interesting is that the the original buddhist uh cave which is itself a kind of buddhist temple had become and over time over a thousand years surrounded by a much larger hindu temple which ah. is the main cremation center for kathmandu exactly oh. like the the way the ganges is i imagine yeah. for hindus it's the same thing so literally so it, it was a very uh, you might find this funny we were very shocked because we realized we were inhaling burning mm. flesh something that we were just not used to and, and also was that no was that the regular practice because i mean in, in the in the ganga people also immerse the body and they let the 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 river cleanse and they have various practices around um the, the you know along the banks of the ganga which vary i don't know what uh, those details are but uh what happened in in for instance in bangalore is during the height of say last may or june the pandemic a lot of the electric crematoriums were i mean chock a block like it they really were running overtime so they had to create these um um i wouldn't say traditional but these sort of they had to go back to that form of burning wood fire uh pyres yeah. so was this that or is this the practice yeah. regularly it was burning wood fire and 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 i have mm-hmm. to say it was it was very shocking to me and i'm 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 sort of displaying my um you know ignorance and naivety naivety perhaps because i didn't i just that was not the goal of this particular shoot was not to 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 explore the crematorium yeah and but but it happens that the temple is literally inside the crematorium and right. luckily but i haven't had- seen a wood fire uh, pyre either so it will be quite Well, I mean because yeah, I mean I I've, I've been to a couple of funerals and it was ba- basically the body just being put in this giant oven and then the doors are closed and you get the ashes 24 hours later um but it's 
no, a it's, lot it's more a real. It's a lot more yeah, real when the body is actually, it's not covered, right? It's literally on a bed of uh, firewood. Right. And yeah. that is a lot more, um, I don't know, you know, I don't know what I feel about that because I have, I mean, number one, I haven't witnessed that. Number two, I haven't lost anyone dear and seen them on that. But I remember my granddad's brother uh, was burnt on a wooden pyre. And I remember that being broadcast on TV because he was a famous poet. And and I was just like, I mean, you can see the face is visible. And I'm just like, that is a real sort of experience of the mortal remains not holding the soul anymore, right? Like you're literally, you're seeing that person who you have a physical attachment to being taken in the flames. And I, I don't know, it's quite, quite, I don't know if it's emotional or it's quite profound, the impact. It was, and and, and I would say it was. Inter- Luckily, we had some Nepalese that we were the, the people that we were interviewing. Yeah, not you know about tumor breathing. Yeah. had a lot of insights. They they what they said to me is they said we grow up with this. We we yeah. know this. We've been here many times to see relatives, and think about it. I mean, how do you how do you honor the dead? I mean, we we just throw people in the ground where we know they they're decaying. Yeah, you know yeah. it doesn't seem any more. Um, dignified or dignified yeah, exactly yeah. so 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 i i found it quite intriguing i mean the, the shocking part was was to be inhaling i mean we would joke mm. that it was a bit it was a smell of barbecue because there's burning flesh yeah um oh, so it was like being in a okay. very surreal <laughs> that's, barbecue. that's weird if your mouth starts watering <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't think my mouth is watering yet <laughs> Yeah, that would be bad. <laughs> yeah, that would yeah. be. Yeah, like what? Yeah. Who am I really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, oh, God, and then funny. we found. We eventually did find the cave, and the, and the the cave is is interesting because, in a sense, the story is very obvious. The cave is right by the river. The river is cold. It comes down from the Himalayas. If you were going to meditate in that cave, you would need to have a system of warming yourself up. Yeah, especially the winter. You know, through the Nepalese winter, so. We, we were able to sort of uh and, and of course we saw that we got people to show us the breath work and and tumor breathing is actually fairly complicated compared to some of the pop breath works that are out there now but i think that's fine um i think you want when i teach people breath work i want it to be simple and easy i, I don't actually usually teach people tumor just because it's a little bit complicated so i want to ask you um since you're a person practicing and teaching a um, lot of times, you know, when it comes to different things, whether it's the Wim Hof method or whether it's the pranayama, which has various forms, you know, there is the kundalini practice of breath work. There's so many things. And for someone who's trying to use breath work to kind of use that practice to tame the mind or to, to sort of still the mind and quieten it, to get to a place where they can focus on beyond the breath and beyond the physical body, it's, you get confused because you get apps now like Headspace and Calm. Then you have all these different YouTube videos. You have different playlists on Spotify, wh- whatever it may be. So is th- it, because I've read somewhere um, that if, especially in your pursuit of God, if that's the word you want to use or the spiritual journey, don't get caught up in the practice and the physical distractions because you get, get it's so easily overwhelming, right? Uh, that someone's like, no, you shouldn't do. Uh, this Kriya, you should do Sudarshan Kriya, you should not do this breathing, you should do the Wim Hof. And everyone has an opinion, of course, in today's uh, <laughs> day and age of information overload. But I, what, what, what is the, what, what is that like uh, a basic principle which you would um, recommend when you're approaching breath work? Like just stick to something you're comfortable with or stick to a certain pattern? What, what would it be? 
Well, there's, I think there's an, a great renaissance of breathwork going on right now. So it's an exciting time. Right. Um, I'm actually developing breathwork for vision restoration. Um, mm -hmm. I actually developed, I did my own breathwork for laughing, where it's laughing breathwork. Ah, um, okay. But but I, can, I want to tell you sort of an interesting story. I think it's an opportunity to talk about something that I, I don't think I could ever get into a film, but it is a kind of amazing phenomena. Yeah, so I'd love that. The, the fashionable kinds of breathwork right now are, are often called DMT breathwork. So mm. DMT breathwork references the states that people, the, often the hallucinations that people experience in breathwork. And the people are Is that really the DMT active. mushroom, which creates that space? So DMT, uh, probably a good way of explaining is also the active ingredient in ayahuasca. As oh, I, okay. The other one is psilocybin, right? Which is the mushroom. Yeah. Okay. So DMT is in ayahuasca. Okay. Okay. And, got it. Sorry. And there's kind of like, there's some science that the, 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 there's like a lot of folk science around it. So one theory is that, that the pineal gland creates DMT when mm. you are, when you die, uh, that's why you hallucinate or it, it's a hard, that stuff is a little confusing. What, what I find is interesting is that the, there's a bunch of science that shows that DMT's role in the body is to save cells from oxygen starvation. And one of the powerful parts of breath work mm. is the outward breath hold. So outward breath hold is you um, inhale for a while, then you breathe all your air out, and then yeah. you hold your breath, which is counterintuitive. Like, why wouldn't you inhale all your breath in and then hold your breath? Wouldn't that be easier? But what actually happens when you push all the oxygen out is you enter a different state. And one theory is that the DMT arrives. The sign that the DMT arrives is a certain kind of hallucination. People often experience this feeling of being behind themselves um, or uh, they see flickering lights or a feeling of being sitting around a fire. These are these common descriptions simply accomplished through breathing. Mm. So um, my, I've been sort of wrestling with what's going on. Like what's, what's going on here. Yeah. And here's my explanation that, uh, the evolution has prepared animals. Uh, it re evolution reuses so many mechanisms. So for example, we're auction addicted creatures. We need auction desperately. When, uh, we move over to our DMT state, which can happen when you go deep into this kind of breath work, suddenly for a short time, often two or three minutes at a time, you are no longer oxygen dependent. Mm. And you now see the world of non-oxygen dependent creatures. So people often experience presences, entities, weird feelings that somebody else is there. Mm. And I've been trying to wrestle with like, what's going on? How can it just be accomplished through breathing? Is it, is it maybe just a mental distortion? Yeah. But I think what it is, is that when you have the short period where you leave the oxygen world, you now see another world. And I should explain that, for example, plants use DMT quite a bit, often in self-defense. Ah. But it, it, it just may be that you... Well, just, it's an example of how the, the world is much weirder than we think. You know, it's and amazing you mentioned that because there's a book called um, The Autobiography of a, of a Yogi, which is um, the life of uh, Sri Paramahansa Yoganand, who was uh, the person who, um, allegedly, I think, but he brought yoga to the to the West, to America. He's got uh, his center in, 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 I think, in California. Yeah, is it Yogananda? Is that Yogananda, yeah. So his yeah, teacher, sure. Sri Yukteswar, actually tells him that he says breathlessness is deathlessness 
and that's just sort of resonates with what you're saying and um i read somewhere else in fact there's a lady who i just interviewed for this podcast who's a neuroanatomist and um neuroscientist at harvard and she had uh, I'm, i'm sure you've heard of her a book called my stroke of insight which is course, her experience really well taylor yeah yeah so i interviewed uh, dr taylor for the podcast yeah. and she has a line in her book where she says when you exhale that's when you experience god if that's god of course being a word for spirituality or the spiritual experience or the divine whatever the uh, label you want to put on it that's your call but when you inhale you soak in all or you take in all the material um surroundings but when you exhale you let go and you that closer to the um, the the world beyond the material so it's amazing that you mentioned that uh in the sense yeah. it's not it's not amazing that it it exists but it's happening uh everywhere around us right so it's quite quite brilliant there's a, there's an interesting study so people who do this kind of breath holding often notice physiological changes one of them is their skin softens and they may look a bit younger and the explanation is that when you when you hold your breath with your breath out you create a crisis for the body there's no mm-hmm. oxygen and what the body does is it actually generates natural human growth hormone and actually creates fresh red blood cells in the blood in real time so, so it's cleansing so your body that, almost say that again is it almost like a cleanse like a deep cleanse every time you hold that breath on the exhale i would say cleanse i'm trying to think of, it's it's almost like a reboot a reboot like, okay the, okay Uh, it's actually um by creating this little crisis mm. the body comes through and um so so and i can even point you to a study there's an it's just rare that studies have sort of excited language in their headlines but there's a study called the, i think it's the surprising benefits of intermittent hypoxia so the scientific term for breath holding is intermittent hypoxia because okay. your deliberate hypoxia as you're holding your breath um so they are shocked by how good intermittent hypoxia is for the body you can't overdo it so how often do you do it since you're mentioning that point just so i, I don't want I people do to just go and practice it right now going i'm going to hold my breath for the rest of the day no day. yeah yeah i do every, every day okay no but this particular I, practice of letting go of the breath, breath and holding. then holding yeah oh, I, i do it a lot because uh, i should mention even another weird thing i just don't want to sound crazy but one of the weird side effects for me personally is that i used to have pretty whitish hair uh-huh. i don't know if you noticed that top of my head is actually pretty uh, the top just is dark uh-huh. that's i believe from intermittent hypoxia and i i tried to figure out why mm. i just noticed one day somebody said to me how come your hair is getting darker i was like, i don't know and i looked it up and so so when people are concerned with going gray they will get illegal injections because it's a bit dangerous i think of human growth hormone Oh yeah 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 yeah. And that will s- slow down the graying process. I mean even people take collagen for their skin, all these things. No, but it's amazing how this intermittent idea is also being applied with diets, right? Whether you talk about restricted feeding where you eat just one meal a day in a certain window totally or, right. or you do just, a 3-day fast, um uh, it's it's actually cleansing your Sorry. So I only want to cut you off because you're hitting the nail on the head. Yeah, yeah, no, no, like, I I think with this way sort of we 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 kind of wanted to chat about your documentaries and thing but we're going down a really interesting path because I'm I I think I tell myself that you know um when you, I I mean I'm more and more I believe in this that when you're on this journey you you, you know and I I don't want to sound as I said you know I don't want to sound like a mystic or a romantic but 
when you're when you're seeking uh, spirituality, it finds you. Uh, and I think these are the kind of encounters and the experiences and the people, um, which is so fascinating. So anyway, so I just want to thank you again while we're on that point. But of course, uh, yeah, I'll let you I let you take over from here. I was going to say well, the reason I say you're on you're you hit the nail on the head is that a bunch of people have now recognized. I mean, I think I just think you're just, you're just have, we're just having the epiphany together. Yeah, that provoking these sort of healthy crises. So, for example, holding your breath for two minutes, your breath out, that's provoking a crisis. Yeah, or and uh, intermittent fasting, which is not eating for a certain, or uh, exposing yourself to cold water for a mm. short period of time, not a long period of time. These short crises are, are natural ways of, of improving health, seemingly in some cases in real time. You can actually mm. see the difference. And like I said, my, I, I've had experiences, my, my skin got softer, my hair got darker, people say I look younger. I wasn't, you know, I'm, I, I, that wasn't my goal, but I was just yeah. surprised that it happened. Yeah. And, um, and breath, but breathwork has so many, what's interesting about breathwork is it doesn't do, do just one thing. I think there's breathwork for deep calm, there's breathwork, as I mentioned, I do breathwork for laughter. There's all kinds of different breathworks, but I, you know, the, the joke is, and maybe it's not a joke, breathwork is the new yoga. And I think so too. You know why? Because a lot of the best breath work can be done over your computer. So there's there's a channel called um, there's a guy, really amazing guy named Dan Vadney. He's a friend of mine, but he's a channel called Breathwork Beats. Yeah, and um, it's all musicalized breathwork. So you mm. you just sit and you do it to the beat, and it just goes by so fast, and you feel so good. You do it mm. in the morning. You do it in the evening. If you want to do it long, you know. And people do. I even do something called mystical breathwork where. We deliberately try to get to the very weird states. Um, ah, breathwork beats, you know, and and of course, I'd, I'll I'll share the the, the the details for your uh, things in the description. But no, this is something which is fascinating because um, I think the biggest problem now you look at people who breathe through their mouth, and I mean, I think all of us have had yeah. that problem. And people have now sleep apnea; they have sleeping disorder, other sleeping disorder. But what I find remarkable is. Um, how we, um, you know, use these things like the words yoga and breathwork and breathwork technically, you know, is an arm of yoga. And what we kind of have, uh, we still kind of revert uh, to these main narratives, right, which is the capitalist material kind of world. And we kind of foray into this. And I, I know more and more people, especially in the West now, are taking this up as a practice. And I think it happens when they go through a certain crises, especially. And and once it goes to the West and comes back, Indians love it. They're like, oh, it's been stamped by the West and we need to do it now again. But uh, I've always wondered about that. You know, I, you know, it's yeah. funny when I, I always find the Indians are almost uncomfortable when somebody says, you know, this originates with india and yoga because it's as if you don't want to be seen as like um mr yoga or something like that and also yeah. i find that indians almost avoid yoga because they're trying to avoid being like a, a walking stereotype you know yeah and now uh, it's i think more uh, people are embracing it and they're like being more proud of it um, okay but you know it that's that's the that's the weird part right i think um when it gets the stamp uh, the export stamp i think it, it gets accepted more but I, you know, you mentioned this uh, breathwork and especially remotely being taught breathwork by various people. I think what, what happens sometimes, it's great because 
the dispersion is a lot more people across the world can get access to it but sometimes that's that's why i mentioned to you about the recording uh if we can get a backup besides zoom because the weirdest thing you need is when you're doing like long holes and the internet freezes up <laughs> the next thing you're just five minutes and you think it's a part of the breath work but the person's like yeah. trying to frantically reconnect and I've, I've actually had that happen to me and uh with with actually fortunately not holding my breath but with asana practice and suddenly i'm like am i still supposed to still be here and the guy's like reconnecting going no no you should have ended that whole like five minutes back <laughs> so yeah yeah that's, that's happened to me where i've been i have given a breath work workshop and, and the, the internet freezes and it's been a problem yeah. yeah it's definitely a problem but um but you know it's even a, it's funny that in the breathwork world i mean it's a very interesting subculture there's people even believe that it's okay to um to black out i'm not sure if i agree with that meaning I don't if you know, actually yeah. had your breath too long and you blacked out, but that would be okay because you just come back too. But I, I, it seems a little extreme. But yeah, but um, but there's, so there's, have there's, you seen any of these extreme things? I mean, because I feel the moment something like this crops up, you, you have um, I wouldn't even say the mystical. You have the people like the the guys from Jackass who would probably like you know inhale carbon monoxide just to see what happens, right? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think that's yeah. Feeling <laughs> carbon monoxide is a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, but, um, we are stamping that, uh, so no one goes and tries that. No, carbon I, by monoxide. By the way, I made a documentary good. that dealt with the jackass. It's called Stupidity. It's more about the culture of deliberate stupidity. I think that's a phenomenon. Okay, so, so, where, American, can they where can people find? Since we're on the um, documentary, they're, they're, some of them are easier to find than others. I think stupidity. I mean, it's probably on YouTube. Lefology, you can just find on YouTube. It's free. Fantastic. Uh, okay. You are what you act. So another another documentary is called "You Are What You Act," which is the science of embodied cognition. So it's uh -huh. basically the idea of where, the way your body feeds back to you. Uh, power posing. It's a weird mm. story, actually. "You Are What You Act" is about. I basically found that a number of American movie stars mm. had become their roles in real life, like Tom Cruise, Cruise who plays these heroic roles. Right. He actually, in real life, he's actually rescued six or seven people that were in trouble. Harrison Ford has done it three or four times. Crazy. Uh, Jamie Foxx did it. Jamie Foxx pulled a guy out of a burning truck. Um, and it, it's it's almost like a metaphor for the way you manifest your reality. That if you if you live in a movie, one of the, there's a new kind of therapy I do with hypnosis, which I call movie therapy, mm. where I started recognizing that if you look at Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise lives in a good movie. He lives in a world where he's a movie star. He's very rich. Mm. kind of can you know do whatever he wants and i started recognizing that people that were unhappy or people that were troubled would come to me and i would say to them i'd say it seems like uh your life is a bad movie it's like black and white you're not the hero of your own story you're uh there's no love possibilities it, there's no passion and it's a very interesting way to fix somebody's life you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because a lot of people in the mental health space will will sort of recognize, uh, and I'm not an expert in the mental health space, but you, you know, you have these things where you're told that your life is your own movie and you can write your own script. And that's exactly what you just said. I mean, it's it's kind of many times you are the biggest sort of antagonist in your own movie, right? Where you are um, being surrounded by people who are, bigger wins people are putting you down but it's literally as easy as saying you know what i'm going to rewrite the script but it's not as easy but in hindsight it is um no it's amazing. that's right uh, i mean part of it is it still requires what's called calibration meaning mm. um if somebody decides 
realize they would like to make more money, is it as easy as them just deciding I'm going to make more money or they have to also think about where they might make more money in their area of business. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's not as simple. In fact, one of the traps is excessive magical thinking where you just go, well, if I, if I just imagine um, piles of cash falling through my door, then that will happen. Yeah. But no, <laughs> yeah, no, but, 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 yeah. but, but, but see, on the other hand, there's a really interesting study of gold medalists in the Olympics where basically they found out that no one who, um, virtually no one who wins a gold medal was not trying to win a gold medal, meaning they were in the business of visualizing themselves winning a gold medal. Right. And, 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 and so this, applies to life where yeah. if you want something it's important to visualize and imagine it um and it, the people that are more likely to get things are, are are not people who think well fortune might just follow me or they are in the business of searching it out looking for it it's, um, yeah it's the it's, it's the messaging to your mind and body right that i deserve this so i'm going to seek it kind of thing yeah no, it's, it's, it's fantastic that people out there are trying this. I mean, I'm so, I'm so glad you covered it. But so you, have you have Stupidity, which is one of your documentaries. Then you have, um, I think we can do an entire episode on each of your documentaries. <laughs> I think it's great. That, uh, What's interesting about Stupidity is it's, it explored the, co the concept of deliberate stupidity, meaning that, for example, in, in, in America, it's very unfashionable to, to be a deep thinker. You know, you're much, mm. it's much more fashionable to be... Uh, you know, a, a, a sort of a limbic rock star, you know, um, but literally there's a very strong anti-intellectual component to America. Jackass is like a really good example. Um, and also picking up catchphrases from movies and act. I, do you think that that sort of, it becomes a herd uh, mentality? Like, because I, I've been trying to understand my position and my um, appreciation or lack of rather for uh, clicks and groups. And in fact, my wife and I were talking about this just a few days back. And I'm like, I don't like what groups make individuals into. Because I, I'd love to talk to a person one-on-one -on -one to get to know them beyond a certain label they identify with. But the moment that person's put into a group, uh, whether it's a school group, whether it's a college group, whether it's old friends, whatever, families, the entire dynamics change. And you can almost see that individual giving up a lot of themselves to fit into the larger structure of what that group demands of them so is that something you came across while doing uh, stupidity i mean i i filmed in some riots where definitely you saw um i think it was you know i think it was more peculiar than that meaning mm -hmm. meaning uh the twist in stupidity was we're at a time where everybody has a supercomputer in their pocket they have access to more knowledge than ever before, yeah. yet they choose stupidity. TikTok they or Insta Reels or whatever you call them. Yeah, and there's some interesting reasons for that. Like, for example, um, uh, like for example, if, if 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 you and I were in a competition to get more viewers, and you were like, "Well, I'm going to write a bunch of very." powerful essays about the social political situation and i said i showed i'm gonna sh i'm gonna film a bunch of people falling down the stairs yeah like yeah, who's yeah. gonna win who's yeah. gonna win and that's that's also more to do with uh neuroscience in a weird way we are yeah. i'm more interested in people falling down the stairs than i am in 
you know, understanding uh, the geopolitics of Asia or something like that. So, so yeah, absolutely. This is the case with anything, right? Long form is one other thing, right? Would you rather have your information given to you in five seconds by, you know, something which flashes in front of your screen? Or would you like to listen to something for longer? Um, and clearly the, 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 the short form is more consumable. But yeah. Also, I think the tradition of intelligence was very linked to linguistic traditions, meaning smart people were always people who read books, who wrote. And and in fact, that part of the problem is that's not all intelligence, that there are lots of forms of intelligence that are not book oriented or not book smart. Yeah. And yeah. that and, and also that um, limiting like I, I try to give you a good example, but um, there's some very brilliant people like Lady Gaga would give an example of, but you, you wouldn't call a Lady Gaga book smart, but she's brilliant. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And and um so, so I think that, um, yeah, I find someone like a David Blaine quite remarkable in their own yeah. sort of way, you know, like yeah. not in the conventional academia, academic space or in academia, but just with the way he's pushed his uh, mind and, you know, the potential of his mind and body, I think it's remarkable. Yeah, I, I know. I agree too. He, he, he famously spent, I can't remember, was it 13 minutes in ice water or 14 he did some crazy ice thing as well. Uh, yeah, it's, it's exceptional. He's, he's really, he, yeah, I don't know if I understand the, uh, how he does it, you know? Yeah. Um, but what's strange, you know, about a person like a David Blaine or a Lady Gaga is they're kind of trivialized in the media and only certain aspects of their achievements are sort of uh, forced down people's throats, right? So right. whether it's Instagram, whether it's, it's uh, okay, Lady Gaga star is born. Okay, she has two... 2000 hits, whatever. But the entire story of what she's done for herself, uh, the way she's figured out uh, navigating in this world of celebrity or navigating this world of creativity and keeping her integrity. I don't know her well, but I, I don't even know her story that well. But she seems like one of those people who's not just a pawn of Disney or um, not just one of these, um, what's the word, like these um, child celebrities who've been created by these big companies and just are sort of tossed off once their worth is gone, she seems to have created a pretty good foundation that she's in charge of, right? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I don't know her either, but uh, but um, that seems she's like she's definitely an interesting character, and and uh, yeah, and and I think the frightening thing is that most other stars are manufactured. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's the reality. They are completely manufactured. So she's a breath of fresh air. Yeah, um, it's, it's nice to hear that there is. Uh, there is wiggle room for someone who wants to make it um, and make it on their own terms, I suppose. But um, no, I, I, I'd like to go back to that part you mentioned before we started recording of your experience with India, because that also ties into your other documentary, Laughology. Um, and, you know, we started talking about comedy and humor and the entire climate of how people and censorship and um, and how political correctness and woke culture and cancel culture, all these things. But you mentioned the es essence of your documentary, which is laughter and not humor. And I'd, I'd like you to talk about that and just tell people what the documentary is about, but also what you discovered through understanding laughter versus humor. So, um, yeah, so I think for me, one of the most important films I've made is, uh, is Laughology, which I made, you know, almost 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, basically, it's the first film uh, to deal, it's the first feature documentary about laughter. Mm -hmm. And and people when they hear that they're like is that 
possible. Um, but the explanation is there's a lot of films about humor. You know, there's probably yeah. a lot of films about Charlie Chaplin and things like that. But there's it was the first film to say, like, what is laughter? And laughter is like a really curious, bizarre behavior. You know, it's a it's a coded system of uh, of bonding. Uh, one theory is it opens the door to play. Uh, I personally believe that it's it actually created the greatest revolution of all time, which has allowed mammals to play in a world that was dominated by reptiles who don't play. Uh, they play a little uh -huh. bit, but they don't really play. They're not and really play fun, allows. Yeah. They don't play look. Fun. <laughs> they don't look. Yeah, crocodiles don't look like a barrel yeah. of laughs. I wouldn't have that yeah. at my show. <laughs> no, the front row. Yeah. <laughs> crocodiles at your show. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly they'll bite and you might not get offended at least but yeah yeah so so uh laughter is this very interesting phenomenon one is that it's actually one of the proofs strange proofs of human universality so okay all human babies start laughing at approximately three weeks four weeks regardless of culture regardless of race or civilization wow it's a human okay. universal it, yeah it's all the same and they're not taught to laugh by their parents it's like this in you know it's this uh intrinsic behavior and uh one theory is that laughter prelate is the beginning of language and one of the signs that language came to dominate laughter and one of the indications of that is that you always um laugh kind of after you talk so a person will say something like isn't it hilarious that we're doing this podcast and then they'll laugh yeah <laughs> yeah and um and they won't laugh first. If I laugh first, like, ha, 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 we're doing this podcast, you'd be like, Albert, you sound insane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What's more insane, though, Albert, is I heard a person that was saying something. I, I hope it was funny, but other people laughed. And this girl who's a lot younger, she's maybe 21, and she just went, hmm, lol. And I said, did you just <laughs> say the word LOL to my joke? Like, that is yeah. interesting. So, I mean, that's, that yeah. sort of ties into what you're just saying. Like, the, yeah, the, the, the reflex of laughing to this new emoji culture where they sort of just use abbreviations to express their emotions. I wonder what that's going to do to them. Yeah, I wonder too. Yeah. So, so what does laughter do? I, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Well, I should explain in, in the film. So part of my story and how it relates to India, I've had a lot. I've had some crazy experiences in India. Let, let me tell you. So, so what happened is, uh, when I was shooting laughology, part of the story dealt with uh, laughter yoga. So laughter yoga is the first laughter exercise system. The idea was that you could harness the positive influences, the antidepressive qualities of laughter. Laughter is a natural antidepressant by simply laughing but you need to to find a way to to exercise it so right. this fellow in in mumbai madan pateria basically has a flash in the middle of the night where he thinks if people just imitate the behaviors of laughter maybe they are themselves contagious so there's three primary laughs ha 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 ho ho, ho he, he, he. and the truth is that if you sit around with a bunch of people and you literally just go ha ha, ha ho, ho ho and he, he, he you will I mean, actually i'm smiling already to, yeah yeah you'll start to laugh yeah. Yeah. So out of this, he develops laughter yoga. Laughter yoga then spreads to, I don't know, 70 countries or 90 countries. It's, it's become quite an international movement. I had learned it in Canada. So in the film, part of the idea was to fly to Mumbai, mm -hmm. meet Madan Kataria and see him doing laughter yoga in his own city. What yeah. I didn't know too is that this peculiar tradition, which is a, an Indian tradition of people walking in the morning in parks. Yeah. So 
so I, I, that was totally exotic to me that people get up in the morning, they sort of walk around parks, they say hello. So he figured out that. Especially Mumbai, people... because of the space constraint, they do have these, a lot of uh, the, the, the groups that sort of walk in the park, they exercise in the park. The park becomes quite a social uh, That's right. hub for, 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 for people there. So um, I was shooting in uh, Africa before I arrived. I should tell you this, it's even a weirder story. Mm. In Africa, there was a laughter epidemic in 1962. It's called the Tanzanian laughter epidemic. Really? 35,000 people started laughing for six months. It's quite a weird story. Uh, you can wow. look it up. I mean, yeah. oh, that, that just sounds bizarre. Like, yeah, uh, that sounds like a great thing. Like, um, <laughs> it's <laughs> anyway. Right I, I, I interviewed people who had been there, and they said it wasn't that fun because people felt like they were possessed. They just okay. couldn't stop. They would. They for six would months. To, okay. Yeah. That, that, not yeah, not everyone was six months, but some people it went for six months. But they would go to sleep laughing, and they would wake up laughing. That, that, that and then they would laugh wow. all day. So why and was that? Was that? Something in the air? Was it something like? Uh, it's what, it's what kind it of trigger? a mystery, but the explanation. One theory was malarial fever. They thought it was maybe just a side effect of malarial fever, but that was ruled out. Okay. And then the best explanation is something. They say it's ma something like mass psychogenic illness, which is also what's maybe going on in the in the pandemic, where hmm. the theory. What happened at that time in Tanzania? Tanzania colonized by the British. In 1961, Tanzania had been turned back to the Tanzanians by the, by the British. And so the, the British ran the education system. Until then, it was a fairly authoritarian, authoritarian system. And then there was a big hullabaloo that finally the Tanzanians get to run our own education system. And then when they set it, when they switched over, it was even more authoritarian than the previous system. And the students in the schools basically lost their minds apparently like basically the way that pandemic so the epidemic started it was an yeah. epidemic three young girls in one school just basically lost it and could not stop laughing i even have the yeah. diary of the school i found the school where it started and they they started stopped laughing this teacher asked them to stop they kept laughing the principal came they threatened to hit them they kept laughing kept laughing then it spread to mm -hmm. all the other students Soon the entire school was laughing and the, the principal just gave up and sent the students home, but they actually infected the city. And Ooh. so this town started laughing and then it spread from town to town to parts of Uganda and Tanzania. And this isn't something that's happened before. There's been some laughing epidemics and even in the US around some churches, hmm. it can happen. So the explanation is more that we have the ability to get into a behavior very deeply if it sort of serves us so yeah. you know if i'm at this point where the world is so ridiculous or what you're telling me is so ridiculous and i start laughing and then you tell me like stop laughing but i can't help it maybe i just keep going you know so yeah, that, maybe that's the best no just thinking out loud sorry for interrupting just that idea I'd rather laugh now than intellectualize all this fake news misinformation this flooding yeah. of hate and, and and violence and greed would you give me six months of laughter i don't know it just sounds much better right because you know what it's so out of control it's so ridiculous just laugh it off and i i don't know it sounds better than the the, the constant noise which is otherwise occupying our minds totally totally i agree um 
the other aspect of this particular part of Tanzania is that the people, the families are very close. And so uh -huh. their emotional states tend to be shared. Uh, okay. So that was part of the, the mystery of it as well. Uh, but what, what made this experience very strange is that, you know, basically they went to Tanzania. It was a big journey to find the original school where the Tanzanian laughter epidemic started, found the school, literally found the principals, had a log where he describes the epidemic, how it started. Mm. So it was mind blowing. And then we got the students of the school yeah. to recreate it. So if you see laughology, you're going to see a scene from the school where the laughter epidemic starts and it's, it's students of the school recreating it. How cool. Um, now I want to talk about how you find these things, like even with the cave or with them, I mean, you mentioned the cave, but how do you, uh, you know, in, in a world like, uh, where, where a lot of the stuff gets lost and also gets glorified. So people recreate uh, a fake kind of school because they know this has become like a tourist destination. But how do you f seek the truth? I, I want to talk about that a little later. But so you, you went to Tanzania to kind of find the origin of this laughter pandemic or the, yeah. the laughter epidemic. And yeah. uh, you come to Bombay or you come seeking the, the person who started the laughter yoga. Um, Literally, so maybe, yeah. I've been on the plane to Mumbai and as the plane, I think, I think we were flying through, I can't remember where, but maybe Ethiopia. And literally as I'm leaving Ethiopia, there's some news about a massacre taking place in Mumbai. Mm. And when I land, the massacre is already in in effect. I'm at the airport, but still, you know, you I don't know if you remember, but it was like such a such a terrible experience and and and, and yeah. for me i had come from tanzania kind of laughing for those lot. people who don't know it's it's the, the uh, uh, albert's referring to like the, the 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 hostage situation at the um at the, the, the oberoi hotel and i think it was oberoi hotel and it basically the terrorist attack on bombay and it was it was surreal because you know as i understand the, about 10 or 11 ter you know heavily armed terrorists went through yeah. downtown mumbai Pretty much, yeah, uh, yeah. Shooting everybody they could, and and what was odd was the um, the local security forces were were armed with old antique rifles, and they couldn't do anything. No, and, and, and a, the, yeah, there was a lot of uh, noise around it because, of course, uh, it wasn't as bad as the noise in the, during the pandemic, but it was still the media picking up on it and sensationalizing it and giving away information to the terrorists. I mean, all those speculations were going around, but yeah, it also showed, showed, sort of showed gaping flaws in. Um, the way our, um, especially local forces are armed. But then again, there was a delay with the special forces coming in who finally did come. And I think they, they really did uh, save the day. But yeah. you landed in Bombay at that point covering a topic like laughter. So it must have been quite surreal. Well, and, and, and not only that, um, Madan Kataria, so, you know, part of the massacre took place at the Taj Mahal in, in mm -hmm. the, the Taj Hotel. Yeah, yeah. And, Town and um, uh, what what upset Madame Kateria was that he goes there almost every day, and it just happened that that day he didn't go. Whoa! He, okay, and and so he realized he had almost he'd almost been there, and um, so it 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 was a very interesting situation because um, you know. We did the interview. The interview was fine. We were able to sort of talk objectively about the origins of laughter yoga, but the emotions around. I remember that I I did uh, I interviewed a group of women mm. uh, there. You know, the laugh, the laughter, the women and the men often laugh separately, but I, I spent time with the women, and 
um, I asked them, you know, like literally the massacre is, I guess it just ended. And, and I just remember that people, when people cried, sorry, laughed, they also cried. Yeah. And so it was a very somber thing. And now they didn't do laughter exercises right away. The feeling was that to honor the dead, they waited three days, but then they started again. And the, and the point of it in the film was to demonstrate that laughter, um, that's important to laugh or be able to laugh um, even in the face of darkness. Uh, and so, 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 but anyways, I will never forget being in Mumbai. I mean, I, I also, as a reporter, because part of my training as a standard reporter, I went to the crime scenes and I mm-hmm. saw what was, what had happened. It was very shocking. And so um, that was quite a disturbing experience. Yeah. And, you know, other than that, I, 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 it was weird because I had otherwise a very positive feeling about India. It was just uh, gory, you know. And um, now that thing really shocked other, a lot of people. Despite, I mean, I think yeah. Indians face a lot of adversity on a daily basis with lack, bad living conditions. Many people have a very sort of difficult time just getting by every day. But I think that universally just sort of shocked everyone into going, dude, this is not done because we do have a lot of injustices. But that was just the next level, I think. Yeah, no, that's a good way of describing it. It was next level. And yeah. and um, I should explain that, but the second time I went to India, I ended up in uh, New Delhi speaking at a conference. It was called the, it was a business sum- summit. And mm-hmm. what was really weird was I was there as a hypnotist mm. and Modi was there. The, right. Um, he was there. Uh, Sadhguru was there. Okay. It was like a really crazy, weird event. Yeah, that's a big and, lineup. Yeah, you must have yeah. been at a big conference because... Uh, both both of them, of course, Modi being the prime minister and Sadhguru now being quite a popular figure, especially marrying the worlds of spirituality, yoga and practical uh, life. I think he's also doing rest, restorative practices for the planet with the soil campaign, etc. So he must have drawn a yeah. lot of attention because he's quite a public figure now. Yeah, yeah, he was. Uh, um, I heard him speak and yeah, it was just great to meet him. Um, yeah, but, but it, that was like in contrast to Mumbai. New Delhi was like, um, you know, festive and happy. Different and, time, yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, so I want to ask you, before we talk about hypnotism, I'm very intrigued um, because I've heard about things uh, and also I've had a psychiatrist friend who practiced, uh, not practiced it on me, but hypnotherapy. But before we get there, I just want to understand because you mentioned um, a couple of things before we started recording about how you went to Punjab and the idea of laughter originating there. But maybe just before you talk about that and also... Uh, draw a paddle between cu- cultures that are oppressed and having laughter. Uh, where does, as a comedian, I'm very interested to know because sometimes we have uh, these discussions going. Did that did that joke provoke like a guttural laugh, which was like a very belly laugh, or did it have a smile and a more intellectual acknowledgement, going, "I feel you and I find what you've done funny." So, can you just distinguish laughter uh, in that perspective? Like, what is a a, a laugh? And what is something which is funny? And also, what is what is responsible for that emotion? Is it a word? Is it a what part? What part of the brain handles it, or maybe the muscularity of the muscular muscular nature of laughter? So I don't know if it's a stupid question or if it's too. No, no, it's um, not. Another, in fact, yeah. in fact, I, on another film, I'm interviewing another laughter expert this week about fake laughter versus real laughter and he does a very interesting thing right so so what's interesting is the brain is very good at recognizing fake laughter 
And mm. the reason there's an evolutionary reason for that is that if somebody is manipulating you, lying to you, deceiving you, mm. they might laugh in a fake way. And right. so it's impor important for you to, to know. Uh, that said, laughter yoga is partly based on fake laughter, but it's an exercise system. Like it's yeah. like jogging is like fake running. Yeah, <laughs> laughter yoga is like fake yeah. laughing. So, so um, what's interesting is that uh, there is an enormous range of laughter. That I would say misunderstood. Um, there are so many different kinds of laughs. Some of them relate to animal laughter. So, for example, the snort laugh, which is a kind of laugh yeah. that people do. Is oh, I'm famous similar. for that. <laughs> You're famous for that? I mean, it's not famous in India, but just famous amongst my circles. After a few drinks, I'm like, ooh, here comes the snorter, you know? <laughs> now, you may find it interesting is that this is, it probably is related to the way dogs laugh, too. Dogs also snort when they're having fun. Snorting is like a pleasure, like feeling mm. good sort of state. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then there's a whole bunch of like interesting laughs. Like, I, I'm very intrigued by the diabolical. Diabolical laugh. Diabolical laugh is a very exact structure. I'll give you. An, I, I know what it is. I, I should. You know, it's funny. I realize I do so many different things. I sometimes find it confuses people, so I don't even talk about it. But I organize laughter championships because they're funny. Hey, this and is. I'm organizing okay. the the world laughter championship, and one of the competitions is the diabolical laugh. That's sort of the best one. One of the best ones. That's and the that that that's the stereotypical evil. Uh, the antagonist laughter in cartoon cartoons and what whatnot, right? That's like the yeah. really deep one. Okay, that's a real thing. But, oh, I didn't even know that. Okay, yeah, it's it's also called, and it's in every language. So every almost every culture de describes it. Mm. And what's interesting is it has an exact structure, meaning there's always a sentence. So somebody will make a declaration, like the declaration, "I'm going to make a diabolical laugh." Then mm. they laugh once, <laughs> and then the first laugh generates the second laugh. <laughs> and then the second laugh generates the third laugh which is the craziest one <laughs> I, I, and I'm, this is not staged I'm genuinely laughing because it's not at all like oh you know the, the comedian in me is like okay this is what what is he doing like, but yeah. the human beings going dude <laughs> you know? it's yeah and what you said it, it's sort of like you make a statement and laugh I've, I've done that already a couple of times on this episode which is sort of you I, I love this because I'm kind of looking at myself as a, a subject of what you're telling me, right? You know, I'm just like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this, which is crazy. So there, e, there are these different kinds of laughters. And are they for certain situations? Are they for certain uh, defense yeah. mechanisms? What are they for? So some of the research around laughter, like some of the big breakthrough studies, one was, was this realization that most laughter is not actually related to comedy. That's, that's a specific thing. So mm. it's it's a very t stereotype thing. So you go to a comedy show, people laugh a lot. But that, I mean, it's a yeah. it's a very voluminous kind of laughter. But yeah. what what it was Robert Provine, uh, who was a neuroscientist, who discovered that he basically looked. He had students look at when people laughed, and they found that I can't remember the statistic, but it's around eighty or you know eighty percent of laughter isn't even around humor. So, for example, people laugh, you know, if you're going through a door with somebody, it'd be like, <laughs> and or um, great to see you. Ha ha ha. Uh, there's a lot of um, of this kind of social uh, laughter that's just meant to, uh, I think it's to show support, to show, um, uh, it's hard to explain, but uh, it's not, there's no joke. There's no joke yeah. being told. I mean, I'm so going to find this now remarkable just being around people because it's going to be stuck yeah, in my head it. because 
sometimes you break your head and you think you've written a really good premise and it's really funny. But then you think, you know, I've been doing this for about 12 to 13 years now. And I'm just like, you know, you, 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 try, you do a bit which you really think has uh, been honed to its best sort of form. You deliver the thing, it gets, I don't even know what it is now. And then someone falls off the chair to your show and the whole crowd just loses it. I'm like, is there any point to any of this? You know, because, so what happens in a comedy show? What are people doing? Are they uh, intellectually recognizing your effort? Are they sort of going back to a place in their life where what you said happened? So what is the emotion or what, what would you, would you call that a different kind of laughter? I, I would say, well, I, well, it's funny. There's a Canadian comedian I remember who would who would actually was known for his nervous laughter and i think literally he was seeding the audience by laughing so he's like so that's a kind of comedian who will laugh a lot as he's going along now some there's another style which is totally deadpan where you don't laugh at all yeah yeah but what i think the contagiousness of laughter is also a very interesting question mm. it's it's interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, one th- one reason people think it's one of the great civilizing forces. Um, we 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 laugh to get it's it, the tribe laughs together. Yeah. One, one of the really interesting studies about laughter shows that we can recognize a friend's laugh at very great distance. So when we hear a friend laugh like from two miles away, we know uh, we know it's them, mm. which is. So it just it's just weird, and the explanation is that um, knowing who our friends are is really important, and knowing that they're safe is also important. So we have the ability to recognize a friend's laugh from great distance. The the other Amazing. thing I think you're yeah. describing in a, in a really good comedy show, you have this contagious effect where um, people are laughing so hard they are not only laughing at the jokes, they are laughing at the laughs. Yeah, it's crazy. And and when that happens, you've got a really good thing. Now, I think also, I think you've got a very healthy thing, mm. meaning when people go deep. So there's a theory that literally, I often describe this thing. When you go to a really good comedy show, and I, I assume that maybe people, this happens to people when they see your work, that when you go to a really good comedy <laughs> not, show. Not anymore. I'm just going to stand there. I'm going to get someone from the laughter yoga club. I'm like, you know what? Yeah. I, I split half the fee with you. Just make them laugh. Because yeah. there's, no, there's no point saying anything today because someone's going to get offended. Someone's going to say that's not right. politically correct. And now people right. applaud your material more than they laugh. So I think I'll just take your route. It's a lot better. <laughs> They're just laughing. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sorry, yeah, you were saying. I think I was saying, I can't remember what I was saying. Uh, no, you're saying people go for a really good comedy show. Yeah, that, 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 that one of the descriptions I've heard people say that when they go to a good comedy show, they have this feeling of a big pressure coming off their shoulders. Um, mm. They are de-stressing. And one mm. of the explanations is that there's a, there's a shift in brain dominance when we laugh. So right, normally we're walking around in our prefrontal cortex, you know, executive function. We're trying to decode the laugh. What the hell is going on here? What, what's that yeah. joke about? But then when we laugh, it's purely emotional brain. And if we laugh mm. contagiously, we're deep in the emotional brain. And now we forget about our stresses, our jobs. And But the really pivotal factor is when, we are, when we're out of the prefrontal cortex, we have no sense of time. So mm. there's a really interesting thing that happens. A lot of people experience relief from financial stress when they are laughing. Mm. This is important. And why would that be? Like, why would you... Why would laughter relieve you from your financial problems? 
well, really interesting reason, because the laughing brain is the limbic brain, which has no sense of time. While the prefrontal cortex, the linguistic brain does have a big sense of time. Right. So that's amazing. So, so when I'm laughing really hard, I, I don't know what the future and I don't know the past. I'm just know now. Which is a form of meditation in itself, right? You're, you're, you're escaping that's right. The, it's, it's a, mm -hmm. That's right. It's the same principle of meditation. It's one of the one of the goals in meditation is to arrive in the moment, and you can do that with laughter. When you la when you laugh really hard, you arrive in the moment, which is beautiful. Because as a performer, as a comedian, as an entertainer, I when I'm in an audience, I'm automatically in that sort of structured, um, rational brain, the left brain, if you want to call it. Uh, where I'm analyzing, going, oh, he or she's funnier than me. Um, what are the jokes they're doing? What is? Right. Oh, I can see this joke yeah. coming. It's a, it's a hack yeah. joke. It's, it's, a, it's yeah. not that funny. Oh, I think it's a copied joke. But then the kind of I, if I try to break away from that and just enjoy a wow. laugh, and it might not even be from a comedian. Uh, it might be from you know someone at the table, maybe a friend, maybe a musician who's uh, saying something funny between songs. It genuinely feels like my identity as whatever identity I want, to, I want to take up at that point is dissolving, which is which is quite liberating, right? Because you're so caught up trying to keep this image of, especially as a comedian, people expect you to be the authority when they're in the room with you. They're like, hey, Sandeep, what do you think about that joke? I'm like, and it gets kind of claustrophobic because you have this pressure of, and people coming and saying things like, oh, I think he's funnier than you, whatever, right? But these things are all sort of slipped away when you actually laugh and not many comedians can laugh yeah i think you're right a lot of them fake that's laugh. right yeah. famously a lot of comedians are they say are sad you know are sad, sad. Or, and they fake and I, laugh and i've noticed this sorry because when i'm at a comedy show and i sometimes have noticed other comedians laughing it's almost when you said that fake laugh to manipulate what that what you want that person to believe i think they do that because if they fake laugh you give this notion to the comedian that that joke is funny when it's really not and they go away with the sense that that bit is ready and when they do it in front of a real audience it falls flat. Yeah. So I've seen that happen yeah, in, in, yeah. in, in real life. So, yeah, I mean, this is the, I mean, I think this is the soulful part of laughter that laughter, mm. like I said, is, is babies do it. It is the, it is this universal bonding behavior that unites all humankind, you know, mm -hmm. and, 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 and it can do that. It can do that philosophically, but it also happens like when a group of people laugh together, it's quite a beautiful feeling for the group. So it's a real thing, I think. And um, yeah, part, part of, I mean, the, the, one of the principles of laughter yoga, again, it's another Indian phenomena that it's funny. Whenever I tell Indians that I do laughter yoga, that I always feel this, get this blank expression. Because right? um, <laughs> yeah, it's like, but, but it's another great Indian idea, yeah. you know, uh, and it's spread around the world. And yeah, there's a place called Cabin Park in Bangalore and every morning, I don't know if it's every morning, but every I've been there a couple of Sundays and you sometimes, you know, I, I was a little shocked. I'm like, what what are they doing? Like, have they lost the plot? But the second or third time, you just kind of, it brings a smile to your face because you know that they are really, they, they are in a state of non-rational, worried about what people think about them state. And it's fantastic exactly. that people are doing that, you know? Yeah. And if you think about your friends, I mean, uh, what I like in friends, and I hope they like this in me, is that I don't like, I don't, I don't sit in judgment for a long time before laughing. You know, if they're funny, if they're, I just laugh. 
Yeah. You know, and, and I, I find being an easier laugher, like one doing this documentary on laughter made me a much easier laughter. I became much more just mm. dis, less discriminating. I like, I'll yeah. laugh at any, you know, cause it's all also cause of the health benefits of laughter. Laughter is good for the heart. It's strengthens the immune system. There's a lot of good, good aspects. To laughter. And I think that's something that's taught me with age as well. I mean, age as, as a performer in the sense earlier, you're much more critical. You're like, is that a Mitch Hedberg bit? Is that a Stephen Wright bit? Is that, and you just sit and talk about bits that which other famous comedians have done. But you know what? Now I'm just like, you know what? I don't know what kind of material, I, I don't know what kind of comedian I'm, 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 I'm an edgy comedian, I'm a dark humor comedian. I don't care any of that. I mean, I, I'm just like, um, I mean, during the lockdown, I did a couple of those virtual shows which were disastrous, but I was just cracking such, such silly jokes at home. And I, my, I would get a laugh, like my mom or my wife would be like, oh my God, you need to get on stage kind of reaction, but it would make them smile. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's where I am today as a performer. I'm just like, you know what? I'd rather be off the cuff and something in the moment, which is either maybe talking to an audience member or just like, you know, it's possible, even though it might not be the best joke in hindsight, people will be like, oh, it's hack or it's just a, it's, 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 it's a pun or something silly like that. But I'd rather do that or tell a story than have this, you know, the American approach to, or maybe Canadian approach to comedy is very calculated, right? They hit 30 open mics and fine tune the bit till it's word perfect, till it's the timing's great. I'm like, I don't think I can be that kind of comedian, at least at this point in my life, because I find it too um, structured, too clinical, and it just doesn't work for me. So this, what you're saying, makes a lot more sense. Like the, it connects with the soul and de-stresses, and it's a lot more fun. Yeah, that was my experience too, because I, I, I had a, you know, I worked in comedy too. I used to do um, satirical TV shows. And one of the things uh-huh. that I did, I think this is one of the turning points in my life, was that I used to do these shows where we they were just a bit dangerous. Mm-hmm. The reason that we were able to commission them is we would take fit actors and we'd put them in political situations. So, for example, right. the Prime Minister of Canada would make a public appearance and we'd have these fake actors in front of him doing ridiculous clowny things. We had them being cops, pretending they're protecting the Prime Minister, and then they would go and they would... Um, have sex with somebody it was it was it was meant to be like whatever would shock would be shocking but at one point we got detained and arrested because we were literally it was like a really funny experience we had fake cop so you know these the 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 undercover cops who have earphones who protect the prime minister yeah i'm sure it happens in india we had these fake undercover cops protecting the prime minister and because they were so convincing because they were dressed up actors the real police thought they were real and ordered them to walk the prime minister down a particular hallway. And then we filmed it and we realized at that moment, there was only actors protecting the prime minister. They weren't, it was like totally fake. (laughs) And when the police realized that they were really, really upset. And anyways, it it made me realize is is that, do I have to take such enormous risks to, Mm. to make something funny? There's something I, like what Borat me. does, you know, like, so, not Borat, but Sasha yeah. Baron Cohen. He goes to extreme lengths to risk to himself, like where he goes and plays and goes undercover into a role. Like, um, you know, I think he was talking about like the new Borat thing or the other one where he gets into a cage fight and then it ends up as a riot. And yeah, so what, what is your point uh, of view on that kind of extreme lengths for humor or comic relief or whatever I mean, the- I think it has a time and place. And I did a lot of that. I, I okay. personally did a lot of that. And I, I learned a lot from it. I mean, I mean, you, very similar to Borat kind of things. Uh, um, 
uh, we did a we did a satirical film where when the Canadian Prime Minister was very unpopular, mm. we did a, a film where a homeless bum essentially switch switches bodies mm-hmm. with the Prime Minister, and then and the Prime Minister is in the bum's body and he's trying to get back into his own body. Anyways, right. so we're shooting it in real events and real you know at, at time, and so I, I remember it being incredible fun, like an incredible feeling of subversive fun, but. Like I was going to tell you, like a turning point for me was Tom Green. Tom mm-hmm. Green told a story where he was driving down a highway working on a show. I don't remember what show it was. And they, they saw a dead moose on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. And then Tom Green um, uh, basically got out of the car, told them to start filming, and he stuck his head up the dead moose's ass, okay. a rotting dead moose. And I think part of the game was to see like mooses are big and it's like, yeah. can you fit your head up a moose's ass? <laughs> I mean, and I was like, is that what you have to do? Is that what you have to do? And I think that what you're actually talking about, and I think this is a part of comedy is there's a kind of constant escalation yeah. of yeah. risk of daringness. And I just got off that boat at one point. I just, and in fact, that's what, when I made laughology, I was like the philosophical question that I, that came to me was what am I really looking for? I'm not looking for, I thought I was looking for the ultimate joke. I was like, yeah. thought at some point I'll find a joke that is so funny. No one will be able to say it's not, it just will be hilarious. But I found mm. out that the ultimate joke is laughter. Laughter is what we really are after because laughter is all the benefit. That's people feeling good, people bonding, it's loving you know it's i'm not saying all laughter is that way but that's what laughter can be um so that that was like a turning point for me i I was like i realized i didn't want to make dangerous comedies anymore and i just didn't enjoy that lifestyle of i liked taking risks but then i realized afterwards like i was up at night worrying about getting into trouble or getting arrested and like borat you know and so i I don't envy him yeah and i don't i think yeah, I admire what he does, yeah. but I don't think it's a good life. No, I, I think you just spoke my mind because that's exactly what I f- I'm feeling post-pandemic, post-lockdown, is when you do these things like breathwork or you're trying to find the space of peace uh, and empathy and compassion, uh, comedy in itself, whether it's stand-up or whether it's m- writing co- comedic content, is hurtful. And I'm not saying it's... I'm not going in the context of political incorrectness, any of that, but you are trying to find the next that next joke or that ultimate joke. And I think what you said was beautiful, like comedy, the ultimate joke is laughter. It's Otherwise, you kind of are trying to please people who are like, oh, I'll give you a pat on the back. That line was so edgy. It was so... Offend. And then you go down more and more topics which are forbidden, so-called forbidden. Um, and I, I don't know, I just find like nowadays, I mean, I'm not, I haven't done that many shows, but like I finish a show and I'm like, I'm a little more sensitive to what I said because earlier I would just take down a heckler. I would just take down someone. I would pick on someone. And nowadays I, I feel like, man, the next morning, did I get into trouble? And that was a lot of that. Did I get into trouble? Did I go too far? Was that interaction too risky? And I don't like that feeling. <laughs> I can even give you a weird insight into this. Is that yes. I did um, one of the films I did dealt with um, MMA fighting. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was found a study. There was a very interesting study of of what's the effect of watching MMA fights, you know what right. I mean, mixed martial arts fights, so people yeah. watch the brutal fights. And what's interesting is that it, it makes people obsessed with hierarchy. 
So, so the men who watch these fights are very much like that guy's stronger than that guy, that guy's stronger than this guy, that guy's. And I'm like, that's just like the comedy scene. People are yeah. obsessed with, with that guy's playing at a bigger show than me. That guy's, mm -hmm. you know, did this. He got more of the audience laughing and they become obsessed with hierarchy, which mm -hmm. is not a healthy preoccupation. Um, as opposed to the deeper meaning of what the what what they're doing even within a show i mean one thing what you just mentioned is the obvious thing which one of the things i noticed just before the lockdown like 90 percent of my mental space was occupied by this conversation who got what gig who got which platform which one did netflix buy how many tickets did he sell he sell how how many or like or even if, if it's in the same lineup you're like oh that person right. killed harder than you and i'm like this is taking away from what i enjoy this is taking away I'm from totally the agree, appreciation yeah. of laughter. And and what you're saying now is kind of like an eye-opener and, and it kind of puts into perspective what I've been feeling, which is, man, I don't enjoy that feeling of being constantly on edge, uh, constantly seeking validation. And what happens then is you become vulnerable to manipulation from others who will say things to put you up in that moment saying, oh, you're the funniest, and the next moment take it away by saying, no, he's funnier. And that's a horror. That becomes completely opposite of what laughter is supposed to do yeah yeah with you yeah okay that's right that's right and, and in fact and 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 you know famously people talk about the misery of comedians that they are yeah. that they are often depressed and miserable and which really should not be the case because their job right. is to cheer people cheer people up absolutely so, but it's not yeah. the case that they aren't uh cheering themselves up because they caught yeah. up in this rat race and I think comedians, at least from what I've heard from the podcasts I've listened to, I'm talking, of course, about people in the US and the UK and this thing. They just, I'm, not, I'm of course, not generalizing, but they just take themselves too seriously, uh, including yeah. myself. Uh, the way yeah. when I talk about comedy, it's like, oh, you know, it's just, and sometimes I've had people say, are you talking about comedy or are you talking about like, you know, an illness? Like, why are you so obsessing about it? Why are you so, uh, why are you obsessed about it? Why are you obsessing over the finer details about the peripheral, which is, Essentially, what are you trying to do? Make people laugh. Keep the simple. Keep the simple clear. But clearly, you get um, distracted by all the other noise. Yeah, exactly. Now, but I, so I, should, I, think, I, I should watch the time. So, if you want to talk hypnosis, I probably should talk hypnosis. Yes, now. I was going to say um, we've gone on, which is lovely. But I think it's getting late for you. I think you need to hit. Um, you need to sleep as well. Uh, but yeah, can you just tell me? I, I think it's an amazing topic, uh, and I've said amazing a lot on this episode. But I really, frank, I frankly do find a lot of the work you've done amazing. Um, how does someone in the 21st century view hypnosis and how did you get into it? Probably the easier question is how did I get into it? Re very simple story. Um, I was doing a documentary, a very weird documentary about people who dreamt about 9-11 before it happened. So it turns out a lot of people had dreams of planes flying into buildings or that kind of thing before 9-11 happened. And they wow. even told people like they told their therapists or or partners or something like that so so it was a very very weird documentary and part of the film involved debates about what ha happened how people died and okay. so when we were working on the film we we arranged for footage so when you when you're doing a documentary you get footage sent to you and in this case it was footage of people dying during line 11 oh and hmm. i had to I had to watch it to figure out, okay, where does this go in the story? And is this correct? And often I would be doing it late at night. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm watching people die. And 
one image in particular was really burned into my brain. And it was an image, I think, that related to my own trauma about 9-11, in fact, as well. Uh, but there was like an image that really, like, I just couldn't get out of my head. And I noticed I would wake up thinking about, it was like a particular guy asking for help before we know he's going to die. And so, <sighs> so um, the image just was stuck in my brain. And I noticed that when I thought about it, it gave me a feeling of the world being, uh, I don't know how to say it, but basically the, the, the world was completely on edge. Like the, there was no safety that uh, something like this was going to happen again very soon. And, but also I noticed I, I wasn't sleeping well. I had higher levels of anxiety than I, I'd ever had. Mm-hmm. And it was literally like this thing was stuck in my head. And so I, I literally see an ad. So this is about 25 years ago, I think, mm-hmm. I, I guess, uh, maybe not quite that, but um, I see an ad where somebody says, do you have pictures stuck in your mind that you can't get rid of on the internet? And I'm like, uh, call this number for free. And so I'm like, okay, uh, I'll call this number. And so I call the number and literally in half an hour, this problem that has plagued me for six months goes away completely. Mm-hmm. And, and I asked the guy what we did and he basically said it's hypnosis. Um, and so I thought, oh, I got to learn how to do this because I have so many friends. I'm, you know, was that at that time working as a journalist who are tra- traumatized and uh, I could help them. So first I started learning sort of trauma protocols and then I just started to do a deep dive. I started to realize. So one thing I found out was that this trauma protocol is itself a scandal because it's a very, very easy way to de-traumatize people, but the public doesn't know about it because the psychological model of treating people is if you have a trauma or, you know, a a disturbance in your life, go to a therapist in about two or three years, maybe we'll get somewhere. Well, this style of hypnotic trauma relief can work incredibly fast. The theory is it can undo the problem at the speed at which it happened some of the time. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very fast system. And part of this, like it's a film I'd love to make is that it's been deliberately suppressed. Right. So that was the first thing I realized. The second thing I realized is that there was no proper model that really explained how hypnosis worked. So mm-hmm. I was started trained to become a hypnotist. And then I started really like at one point, there's like these things in your life. I'm this way with eye vision restoration now where I just like got really the, the bug. And I yeah. read every book, uh, studied every course I could and got trained by some really good people. And, and then I, that's when it dawned on me that, that there what that there actually is a model that kind of explains it. And actually weirdly it relates to, this other documentary that got me into the first place, because the documentary in the first place ultimately was kind of about dreaming. Yeah. And one of the theories is that, and I believe this to be true, that REM states in dreaming are very similar to hypnotic states. Mm. And it, that has huge implications. So I, so I did a bunch of research on that, put it sort of together. And then, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I just was able to go, look, there's a pretty good, case here where if you make the link amazing things happen so there happened to be like a tedx going on in my town i think at the time or whatever and uh, they invited people to audition i auditioned and what was funny was the they had a jury 
uh, the jury and of course the jury happened to be very hypnotizable so i hypnotized them all <laughs> and so it went really well but i explained to them what i was doing like i explained what i was going to do and then i did it so they were like whoa and then i explained and then i remember thinking when they they said for sure like literally it was the only time i ever done an audition where they said you're in they were like you're yeah. in right away we no, so you do that TEDx talk sorry when we're on that topic I want to and you have those people up on stage with you right yeah were they actors no people Pick, I'm sorry for asking it because it just yeah. is so no, people often think they're actors and I have two explanations for it one is that when people are hypnotized they are kind of in a waking dream where 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 what the hypnosis tells them becomes their kind of reality to a certain extent. So if somebody's in deep enough, you tell them they're a chicken, they're, they're a chicken. Do they look like they're acting? Uh, sometimes they do because the kind of people that are more likely to go up on stage are people that are not as afraid of, of acting out. Mm, okay, okay, okay. The second sense. thing, what I've noticed too is that if you take a bunch of people and you hypnotize them and just start suggesting things to them like, uh you're all cowboys or whatever they will seem a lot like improv actors they just do mm. and in fact there's a show i think there's a show which Colin Mockery uh did where he would it, it actually got deep sixed just before the pandemic where the idea was he would invite an audience that would get hypnotized mm. and then they would they would do improv basically saying that inherently we all have it in us to do improv Exactly and under, in in hypnosis people seem to look like improv actors and yeah. and and so that's it's been a problem like every, you know there's so many people who are like I went through a pretty rough time with mostly Americans being mm. convinced that, uh, that these people are actors but every mm. time I do a hypnosis show every show I've probably ever done this people who think they're actors there is never actors never mm. in in my case I I right. mean there might be some people that use actors but you don't need to I'll mm. tell you why you know basically the, the, here's the math 1 in 20% of people is highly hypnotizable sorry 1 in sorry but 1 in 10 people is very highly hypnotizable 2 out of 10 is pretty hypnotizable mm. if you have a audience of 100 people you're going to get 10 people that are kind of magical yeah. if you put them if you know how to put them into trance you can suggest anything to them and i'll tell you the profound reason why this is there you might say well what like i i often it's actually the next headaches i would like to do is where i would turn people into someone into a chicken and explain that actually well, i didn't mention that this is actually a really profound phenomena yeah and this is the explanation one of the roles of dreaming is to teach us lessons mm -hmm. so so for example why do children always have nightmares you would think it seems cruel that children have these horrifying nightmares but basically it's their programming telling them to watch out for predators you know you got to watch out for predators and and part of the idea would be is let's say you had a dream where you're being chased by wolves and then in the dream you like climb a tree and you get away from the wolves then mm -hmm. if it happens in real life that you encounter wolves then you might climb a tree just like in your dream ah so it's like a almost like it's playing out this 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 kind of reel in your head and That's it's right. kind of feeding that information so you have it in your archives right Crazy. but now here's here's the interesting twist why why does it need to be so convincing so why does the why does the wolf need to be so frightening in your dream and the the explanation is intriguing if you didn't believe the wolf would could kill you in the dream you wouldn't figure out the right things to do you wouldn't 
search for the way out. So mm -hmm. similarly, when you hypnotize someone to be a chicken, what makes it funny is they really believe they are a chicken because that's the, it's actually as a, as a scientific term, it's called dream neutrality. It's the, it's the fact that we believe our dreams, not all the time, but mm -hmm. part of the time. So when we believe our dreams, so, I mean, I saw this when I first started doing hypnosis, I would turn people into chickens. What was scary about it is sometimes I'd be in a crowded room and the chicken person would be right in front of me and often be like a guy. Mm. And I would realize, I would look at the energy of the guy moving and I was like, this guy really is a chicken. He would mm. move like a chicken. And because he believes 100% that he is. Now, what makes it confusing and why people think that there's actors sometimes is that only a certain percentage of the population can do this, like in a, in a stage show yeah. where you can take them, put them in the trance, turn them into a chicken, and then they, you know, I'm using chicken as an example, you can turn them into yeah. anything, you can turn them into yeah. an alien. And I guess, sorry, what's my point here? That when if you come to a, a stage hypnosis show and you go, yeah, like that guy's a chicken, but it wouldn't work on me. And it might be true that it might not work on you. So mm -hmm. this makes people very skeptical and it drives controversy. But, you know, that that um, TEDx has, I think, 11 million views. And I think yeah. it's partly that controversy. The other TEDx I did, which is called Surprise, You're Hypnotized, I think is more, well, it was a different story. Mm -hmm. But it's a, it's, it's a more... Uh, it's a whole other aspect of, of hypnotism. I try to be more direct with that one. Yeah. But, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be so uh, thrilled if you could come back and talk about this in more depth because I think I want to uh, explore the idea of trauma and hypnosis to heal uh, people for trauma and especially the expedited uh, route if there is one versus like the scandal of um, it being a manipulative tool. Uh, and also, of course, about the, the, the new project and the new documentary you're working, about, uh, working on, which is the natural eye healing. So I think we've, we've covered a lot today and I think uh, yeah. we've taken a lot of time and it's late for you, so I don't want to go on. But yeah. I really appreciate you uh, sharing um, all your stories and doing such amazing work because, as I said, I literally can get you back for each of your documentaries and go over it because it's exciting, it's yeah, fun. It's and And, and it's yeah. something that strikes a chord with me, so it's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think you asked excellent questions. It was it was interesting to be to feel understood and uh, to the degree that I did. You know, um, yeah. I mean, I, um, uh, yeah. This has really been quite an interesting conversation. But you're right. I think hypnosis should be its own, almost its own thing. Yeah. I was going to tell you even to uh, tease a, a really crazy story is that there's there's a fellow there's a famous 19th century British doctor who goes to Bombay, Bombay hmm. um, Mumbai, and he invents hypnosis for pain. And part of the story was it's like, it's, it's India again. So everything comes from India <laughs> at that time. There was a plague of, is it elephantitis is where, where men often had these huge swollen testicles. So right. It's an amazing story. Uh, his name was, I'm trying to remember his name. Let me just finish the story because it's amazing. Yeah. So, so um, part of the problem was you couldn't, there were, this is before there was anesthetic. Right. So people had these massive tumors and there was one fellow in Mumbai who had a tumor that he had to carry around in a, in a, um, whatchamacallit, uh, wheelbarrow. It was Whoa. so big. <laughs> it weighed something like a hundred. It must be pounds. agony, but it's just, yeah, yeah it's fun. It's painful. Yeah. So, 
so this fellow, the hypnotist, figures out that he can hypnotize him and remove his his tumor hmm. uh, while he's awake, and he does it. Whoa. And and he becomes a legend in India at that time. Hmm. Part of the story is he goes back to London and nobody believes him. But right. um, it would be a great film. It's such a great film, this guy, because he's it's like 19th century Calcutta and. Um, um, you know, when he first discovers um, mesmerism in India. Yeah. Quite intriguing. No, it's amazing. I mean, that's a kind of thing, right? I mean, it's no, no one, everyone talks about British coming and taking the diamonds. No one talks about the actual yeah. jewels that they took back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we need to dedicate an entire episode. And if you... Um, yeah, we should I, do a hypnosis I, one. And you could use, I mean, you can also use clips if you want. And I could even, if you like, I could even set up some of the things like, for example, like the chicken thing. It's interesting to explain, like shock inductions are a whole other kettle of fish. Where Can you do it over the uh, over a call like this? You can hypnotize people over Zoom very easily. You cannot, shock inductions generally don't work unless you literally could shock people because you have to grab their hands. Right, but, right, right. But you can do, um, a lot of hypnotic inductions do work over Zoom. I, 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 do, I have a lot of clients over Zoom. Oh, lovely. Okay, we'll just uh, talk about that after this. But uh, I hopefully will have you back on this uh, yeah. podcast sooner than later. But uh, thank you for sharing everything that you have today. I'll put the links to your documentaries in the description. And if anyone wants to reach you, they can uh, send me an email and I'll put them in touch with you. Yeah. But Albert, really appreciate it. Uh, all the best for your new project and for thank all you. your new endeavors. Thank you so much for joining yeah. me today. My pleasure. It was really a great time. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.